Touch them all, Joe. <laughs> Andy Crosby, the golden goal. Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. In this episode, we're speaking with David Kynes, the longtime Much Music executive who more recently founded Hollywood Suite. David, welcome. How are you? I'm great, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. You know, the weather's turning and uh, the, the, the bikes, the bike rides with my son or the walks are a little more pleasurable these days. So Spring has sprung. I got a roof over my head and food and uh, the job. So it's all good. And I, I got a shot in my arm, at yeah. least one. So I got one too. One down, one to go. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Hopefully the second one comes around. So I wanted to get going. We're going to, for our audience, I mean, you, you probably know David already, or you'll, you would have researched him by the time you're listening to our episode today. So just thinking back to kind of the biggest topic we're going to deal with today, you know, while John Martin and Moses Neimer founded Much Music, it was your baby for almost a decade. And how would you describe the role that Much Music played in our lives during its heyday? Well, during its heyday, uh, the 80s, 90s, and and 2000, I mean, it had a long run, uh, relatively speaking. I mean, it was the focus of, national focus of youth culture in Canada. And remember, this was a time of scarcity. There wasn't a lot of Compared to today, there weren't a lot of options available. You had your local radio stations, um, and then we really were the only national television station that that played music. And that you know, you talk to people now uh, who are adults and actually fairly functional adults, but at the time they would come home at three thirty and bam, they were in front of the set uh, watching much music, watching Rap City or The Wedge or. Uh, much on demand, uh, you know, rolling their their VHS machines to get their uh, favorite videos, and it really pulled, it really united um, in a common thread uh, youth from coast to coast to coast at, at the time. Um, like I don't think you've seen too much like that since. There's obviously a huge amount of fragmentation, and people get their their musical case influencers come from all sorts of places you know whether it's TikTok or instagram or spotify or playlists or what have you so at the time it was a real you know real tastemaker yeah i remember back to my youth and i'm exactly the right demographic to have grown up with it and growing and i was born here in toronto and raised here in toronto and then you were you were absolutely a part of the culture i guess in my high school days would have been kind of the early the early 90s and and for our podcast listeners, I'm 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 it's I'm going to commit a little bit of a faux pas here because I'm going to show something visually to David, but but I, I, w- I want to chat about it. So I was cleaning up um, I was cleaning up the basement as I'm sure during COVID everyone has been purging a little bit. So I found my CD collection and, and I stumbled upon upon this thing. Endemix Dance Mix '92. Yeah, '92. Now it's, it was an awesome one. I think I have I think I had '93. So y- y- you dabbled a little bit. Oh know, yeah. In, in uh, being a, a creator and distributor. So help, help the audience understand that. And I think it, there was probably a few other business strategies. The music compilations um, started off, and, and there's someone who can better speak to this. Uh, he shares my initials, DK Senior, David Kirkwood, the head of sales and marketing, uh, legendary sales head of marketing. And I think it was a combination of, of excess inventory, ad inventory, and hey, we can put a brand out on a record. And it started with quality records. 
and dance mix was I think the first few and um, I think that one sold a million units. Wow, so that's like um, that's like platinum is, standards. Uh, that's diamond. The old days, so gold was used to be fifty, platinum was a hundred, and diamond was a million units. And it started with Quality Records, and it was a great branding exercise. You know, it put the logo into people's hands, and they paid for it, and it bought airtime on the station. So it was kind of a win, 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 win. And then it evolved into uh, Big Shiny Tunes, and that went on to do, I think, 18 versions of Big Shiny Tunes. And the, again, that people bought that CD and that playlist on that on that those 18 tracks or 20 tracks that were on the CD. Really, you know, it was the soundtrack to many youths' uh, lives at the time. No, it was. It was, and I, um, you know, at the time. And, and I think we might have some common history here. At the time, I was I was a DJ. I would have been probably grade yeah. like twelve, and uh, that's probably why I had this and a few other you know. You could, and you tunes. could probably just bounce back and forth between the two CDs, and that was your playlist. Yeah, it so. was a lot of fun. You know, we've had uh, we had Keith Pelly on on the podcast. I think you know Keith from your past. Yeah. He was a, he was a DJ when he was a kid. Yeah, so was I. I had to use I had to use cassettes. I oh I was. What was so what what was your handle? I, there was no handle. I was just playing the playing the hits, man, off cassette. <laughs> well, it was it was a lot of fun, and the um, you know the the licensing part of this. We had another fellow named named Jim Nish, who you may not have come across, but he's big into licensing and branding and distribution or in that space. And you know, at that time, like early '90s, you know, putting much on a on a CD like this and distributing that's pretty brilliant stuff. So it's amazing that uh, even back then you guys were thinking like uh, so much innovation around this brand. Yeah, uh, you know, you were talking, I was listening to a podcast, uh, one of your earlier uh, editions, and uh, you're talking about the red, the bat red light. Yeah, yeah, with Al Dark. Yeah, and, um, you know, um, much music was doing sales promotions back in the 80s and working with advertisers to come up with content that they could put their brand on. And it was you know it drove me as a as a as a programmer and a scheduler at the time it would drive me nuts because the program uh, the sales department would call up and say hey can you think of something that has this brand characteristic and that you could put some videos around i'm like oh, i'm trying to program the station uh and schedule a station and get the biggest audience possible and you want me to come up with a program block that you know works for sharpie or something um but ahead of its time because uh, it's what everyone is doing is, is branded sales promotion well looking looking at the north american media landscape you know, today and you know much music they, they could have had or you could have had a much larger relationship with mtv and what, what i'm what i'm asking why i'm asking this question what i'm thinking about here is you know, over time it took took a, a decade or so but TSN ended up being partially acquired by ESPN and then a bunch of ESPN programming was flowing into TSN. But the relationship that, that you had with MTV Viacom, it was, it was a little different. So how, you know, when you think back on, on that time, comparing with kind of the world today, how, how would you describe the relationship that you had with, with MTV Viacom back then? Um, well, we were a customer, but I think they were, 
reluctantly selling to us, but they couldn't figure a way into the market. And I, I don't know how ESPN leveraged their equity into TSN. Maybe it was a rights thing, uh, but MTV wasn't able to pull that off. And the only way they eventually got into the country was going around us and using a bit of a regulatory sleight of hand with uh, the Craigs in 2001. And then again with CTV in 2006. So um, it was a delicate dance. Um, I'll say that much with MTV. I mean, famously, we, we heard stories about as, as their worldwide dominance grew. And remember, we were also planting outposts in Argentina and Colombia and Finland. And uh, there was a brief dalliance in England, um, you know, expanding the much brand. And of course, much USA, um, you know, they were they were also everywhere. They were trying to be everywhere, and they were. Uh, but famously, supposedly, you know, they had just this one big, thick red block uh, above, right to the north of them, that they couldn't get into for many, many years. But we bought their, we bought a lot of their programming. So now, thinking about the you know, the early two thousands, when maybe those last final acquisitions happened, how um, how, how did the world change for you when 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 Chum was eventually bought? by CTV in about 2007. You went from effectively a, a family owned business, uh, albeit publicly traded, but effectively a family owned business. And, you know, the son of the owner was four doors down the hallway from me to uh, a, a much bigger company where with structure and hierarchy. And yeah, it was, uh, I, I'd say it was a bit of night and day between the chum ownership and uh, what at the time was called CTV Globe Media and then became Bell Media at some point. Yeah, at some point later, some yeah. point yeah. after. So it was a lot, of, it was different. I mean, it was a much bigger company and it had stru more structure to it. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, the world economy was cratering. So good point. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was tough on everybody. It was it was you know, CTV went from you know chartering jets to go to the Super Bowl to oh we you know we can't do that. What what we we got to save some money here and there. So um, it was uh, it would have and it would have been challenging had it still remained chum. I would imagine you know I would imagine City TV would have taken a kick in the head in 2008 when all, when all that started collapsing. So yeah, it's a good, it's a really good point. I mean, that's, I just, I just found my way into, into, I guess what was CTV globe media in the spring of 2008, right. As uh, you know, that initial recession. Wow. You came in just as it was just headed downwards. I mean, and to be clear, yeah, it was headed downwards from a, you know, from a making a, shit ton of money if i can say that to making just a ton of money <laughs> not you know it was, it's not like uh, anyone was losing money but it was still a, a change and, and you know yvonne and suzanne especially suzanne will say it was just it was no fun after after once 2008 hit it just was not as much fun you weren't like hey let's do american idol hey let's do so you think you could dance canada let's take a chance let's take a chance you know those days were gone 
Yeah. And then I guess before everyone knew it, Bell had come in and uh, bought the whole company and, uh, and set it's on, set the whole business on its course. The, you know, the CRTC is a popular topic when we, we talk about the things we're talking about, which is acquiring uh, channels and, and networks and um, you know, looking at, you know, the rise of much music and some of the exclusivity that the, I mean, the channel had early days when, when you were there, like what memories do you have about the CRTC and, and its decisions and how they affected, you know, what you did day in, day out or well, what you focused on? Phil King alluded to this uh, in an earlier episode of your podcast. I mean, that they set the, the rules and the boundaries and they set it for not reasons of government control, but there was a physical scarcity of airwaves. There's a limited number amount of uh, bandwidth. And that was always the, the basis on which all licenses were handed out anywhere. It's just you can only have so many frequencies. And CRTC was set up to not just manage those frequencies and that bandwidth, but also the, the cultural, uh, protect some of the Canadian culture. So yeah, TSN had an exclusive right to do sports and much music had an exclusive right to do music. Uh, it was a competitive process. We all applied for our licenses. It was competitive. You had to put your best foot forward. You had to make promises uh, to, the, to the various industries that you were uh, hoping to serve. And in the case of Much Music, it was uh, video fact, which became Much Fact. And a certain percentage of revenue went to that. I don't know what TSN's promise was, but I think there was an amateur sport. Hockey Canada probably filled that gap for yeah. them. Yeah. And this is back in the 80s. And that that regimen continued right up until 2000, where you, when we applied for much more music or um, famously someone applied for what became Slice. And I think they put in something like an 80% Canadian program expenditure, some insane number of 80% or higher Canadian program expenditure requirement. And they said, yeah, we're going to buy all Canadian programming. Uh, or almost all, hardly any of our money will go to foreign programming, but because they wanted the license, they got the license. I think they found that that undertaking, uh, that condition of license challenging. But uh, starting in 2000, uh, when the Cat Bees came in, and that's when, uh, uh, in the case of where you were, the Women's Sports Network was launched, it didn't last long. Uh, watched uh, much vibe much loud book tv much more there was dozens of channels uh, launched uh, infamously on september 7th september 7th 2001 uh 50 channels launched uh, with very minimal conditions of licenses obviously things changed uh four days later and those cha- those cha- those channels all had a few challenges after september 11th but uh, they did, you know, some of them survived, some of them, some of them didn't. But uh, the CRTC played a big, it was a big part of your job was making, uh, making sure you hit the, the conditions of license and that you're um, following them and staying in compliance and also making sure no one else was treading on your territory and you could itch and moan if you wanted to. So, you know, when, when CTV tried to launch relaunch MTV as talk TV, you know, we, we put up a stick about that and the CRTC supported us. That's, but those days are long gone. Yeah. I, well, I do want to come back to regulatory in a second, but I, I want to properly, you know, discuss much before we, before we kind of move on to your, your, your present day and, and the world, the way it is today. 
if you've spent any time in the last number of years, I know it's been a few years uh, since you were working day to day in the much business. Um, when you think about the brand today, much music and kind of what it, what it's for in the past, how do you think it could, it could exist and, you know, not compete, but, you know, be relevant to, you know, today's youth, to today's culture? Well, it can't be about music anymore. Um, because it's just available so many other places. So you can't, you, you know, you have to go to the pop culture area. And we much started doing that with bringing on Ren and Stimpy and liquid television in the nineties. I don't remember that. It was just like, yeah, we was like, there's, there's other things we can color around the edges of just being music. Um, but what it, what much hasn't done and I don't think the economics support it is, is to do all that other kind of content. And we tried doing some of that, uh, gonna meet a rock star and some other content uh, in the mid 2000s to, to branch out from music. Cause at that point, YouTube was already starting to, to uh, deliver music videos to people. And uh, plus we were cannibalizing ourselves with all the little digital channels, much more, much loud and much retro and much vibe. Um, so uh, it just it's tough in Canada to support that, to support that original production on that small an audience, and and unfortunately they haven't done it. So it's just a rerun channel for South Park. No, it, they're in they're in tough there, and I hope uh, I hope they figure out something because you know for for many of us yeah, they're in tough. Yeah. I mean they're 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 serving the audience. They're getting they're getting ratings. I think they're still pretty profitable, but it's it's not a long term. Okay. No, and we haven't, you know, we haven't really discussed it on the podcast yet. I think we're going to have to in a future episode. But there has been um, the the closure of of we'll call them specialty channels uh, beginning in the U.S. We saw um, the closure of uh, NBC Sports Network kind of went away. And I'm not going to I'm not going to query you on all the sports stuff, but it is it is something that we're all watching and waiting for when the, the Canadian you know, broadcasters and distributors are going to have to adjust. Uh, well, they have. I mean, there's been a couple of channels shut down. Uh, you know, Doug over at Chorus and and others have said we, we you know there will be channels that we have to close down. Uh, they just don't sustain themselves. But they've lasted longer than many would have thought. So, so fast forwarding to today in your current company, you know, Hollywood Suite. Where do you get the content um, that that you distribute? And also, just confirm where you distribute it. So Hollywood Suite is a, a suite of four channels, and we run um, classic move, mostly classic movies. So we have four channels: Hollywood Suite seventies, eighties, nineties, and two thousands. And we get our content from major studios such as Warner Brothers and Sony, and uh, MGM and NBC. And then uh, other content comes from a lot of independents. So similar, if you will, to Much Music, where a lot of the videos came from the start, I think, about as 10 and then gradually dwindled to three major record companies. And then you had all the independents. So we source content from all sorts of people and all over the all over the world. Uh, but most of it comes from the, the major studios or the majority of it comes from the major studios. And it's distributed through. So we're a traditional. Uh, we are probably I think we are the last 
linear channel that launched in Canada. Gusto came after us and then it got bought by CTV, but like the last linear channel that launched in Canada almost 10 years ago. And uh, so we're available on your, um, I noticed there's a lot of acronyms on your podcast. So we're on BDUs, <laughs> uh, but as they're now called more commonly MVPDs um, across Canada. So Rogers, Shaw, Bell, et cetera, et cetera. And then some VMPDs, MVPDs, virtual MVPDs, uh, such as Amazon. That's what they're they're called. Uh, they're called the virtual MVPD because they actually don't have a physical cable connection, wired connection or satellite connection to your house. It goes through the open internet, but it's effectively a cable company. And for, for our listeners who are Canadian, I mean, um, this is kind of net new language we're using, but for our American listeners or anyone else in the world, very common in the United States. For this MVPDs, virtual, yeah. Virtual, virtual in particular. And VMPVD. MVPDs, yeah, and yeah. You, you, YouTube, for example, operates a service like that in many markets in the in the. Um, yep, yeah, they have a pseudo cable as as um, Sling and uh, well, Sling is part of um, Dish Network. So yeah. So your, I'm going to use quotes here. Friends, you know, your friends at Viacom have launched a couple of years ago something called Pluto TV, which is a fast TV product. And for our audience, which have perhaps not heard that acronym before, that means free ad-supported streaming TV. How does fast or subscriber-based direct-to-consumer services, how, do that, how does that factor into the future of Hollywood, Hollywood Suite and your business? Well, um, very timely question, because we've been talking about, a lot, about, about that a lot in the last few uh, months and years, but certainly the last few months. You know, we, one of the things we differentiate ourselves when we launched is we were commercial free movies. So we, that was our differentiator. So we're almost like a uh, premium service, like a Crave or uh, or Super Channel or Stars. So there's, uh, you know, you pay a bit more for it. And I must say just a tiny bit more. Um, <laughs> than your regular cable channel. I mean, remember you are paying, I mean, it, it, it astounds me, you're paying for AMC to hammer you with 14 to 16 minutes of commercials an hour. Um, and so you're paying for it, plus you're seeing the ads. We don't have ads in the movies. We run a little bit of advertising between the movies, but it's really insignificant so far. Um, so when we look at the fast landscape, it's hard to take the brand that's associated with commercial free movies and then have a version that would have ads in it. But maybe, maybe there's um, some sort of a buffer or something to go around the edges. If you look at what Blue Ant's doing, you know, they're not, uh, they're not, uh, what do they call it? Uh, travel and escape, which has effectively become kind of a suspense channel they launched a different kind of brand on on the fast platform so that's sort of it's a it's peripheral to their to their main brand so that's maybe maybe somewhere we could go um or just call it something completely different but it's, it's a different experience than what people associate with the hollywood suite experience they have today so you got to be very careful about how you position that and how you market it thinking about your content is do you have titles that are delivered through through your channels that might also exist on a, on a on a Crave or an Amazon or a Netflix or a Disney? Yes, uh, we have 
titles. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of movies out there, but there definitely is some duplication uh, between us and stars and sometimes uh, Amazon Prime and Crave. So, um, but I think the value we bring is in the curation. And like, we're very, you know, we have a team of real movie nuts, movie lovers. And, you know, how we schedule, how we program, how we promote uh, is what differentiates us from just having to go into a, an over-the-top service and surf your way through, you know, a million different rails, as they call them, and sliding across trying to find something. So, you know, when there's with four linear channels and a very limited on-demand offering, you know, you're, you're going to easily and quickly find something you want to you want to watch even if you only watch it for 20 minutes if you just want to come in and watch 20 minutes of bull durham that's great and you feel good about it it's uh it's a great flick great. now in any are you kind of tied in any way to, to not being able to go direct to consumer through your deals or is it you have you have rights to do that with certain certain content versus others um it, it depends on the you know the copyright owners want to slice and dice and monetize their intellectual property to the as as much as possible so you know those negotiations are very careful about what you can do you know and it's the same in sports it's like what you know how much are you going to pay for that right how much are you going to pay for that right you know we even had to have a negotiation with a few studios about vmpvd oh that's a different right i'm like really or so we're selling, you know, consumers uh, who are going to pay a monthly subscription. But you know that, and that's their that's their bread and butter is intellectual property, and you want to get paid for it. So it's a negotiation. Yeah, listen, they have those rights, you know, in perpetuity. You know, very. Uh, so they, they got to make sure yeah, they monetize the long tail. Yeah, and and look, they've invested in it. Um, remember, for every hit movie, there's you know eighty that aren't. Same with. Same with music, same with record companies, right? People go, oh, they're making so much money off of Miley Cyrus or whatever, Michael Jackson. But, you know, there's there's another 80 records that didn't make any money. Of course. They lost money. They lost money, you know, so. Thinking about regulatory again, and then I promise you I will not bring it up after this. You know, there is, there is because I have you and you 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 know the dance. Yeah. I'm happy to nerd out. If, if there's people who want to nerd out on regulatory, let's go. Well, it's topical. It's topical. And it, so it's this bill, you know, C-10, which is, you know, still as a Canadian, you know, as a taxpayer, I'm still a little questioning what exactly this bill is. It's, it's come and gone a few different ways. Um, but in a sense, it's going gonna, it's gonna to tax, uh, well, certainly these over-the-top services. And so it just, you, I'm assuming you've been following it and, Maybe, maybe you could help us with some of your insights on what it means and why now and whether you support it or not. Well, there's many aspects to C10 and certainly the thing that's the most controversial as we we're recording this on May 10th is, you know, the supposed censorship of your postings about your kid's birthday on YouTube, uh, which is a, just a total red herring and nonsense. The government is not going to censor your postings about birthday your kid's birthday what it will help on that as i understand it in that regard is the copyright you know if you have cold play playing in the background uh you know there's we've got to make sure people are fairly compensated for that and that's been a that, that situation's improved a lot but it's just got a way more room for improvement but i think back to the the how c10 affects the broadcast 
media industry that's very important is the existing Canadian regulated broadcasters have paid, you know, in exchange, the regulatory bargain was you got the airwaves, you had to give back, you had to spend a certain amount, you had to do a certain amount of local programming or local news or invest in Canadian production. And, um, and obviously, hire people, you couldn't exist without hiring a whack of people to do local news. So there's been a, a regulatory bargain and contribute and contribution to society by to Canadian society by Canadian broadcasters and media outlets. And that by um, allowing uh, foreign um, OTT services over the top services in, I mean, literally zero, like not even not even a penny in, not even collecting HST and passing it back to the government, let alone until recently, you know, hiring anyone on the ground. Like not a, you know, Netflix didn't have a single person on the ground till a few years ago, and then they hired a lobbyist. Now they're opening an office, but it's still, you look at how many people, CTV, Chorus, and all the other broadcasters hire even in the independent sector i mean i have 20 people at hollywood suite you know they're paying taxes they're renting their houses or buying houses and you know none of that i mean yes they netflix is licensed in canadian programming and i know there's some independent producers are very happy to sell their shows to netflix and so there's an indirect trickle down but it's still uh, a small amount compared to you know uh, ctv i think spent Last year, two years ago, they sent out a press release just and they had a little jab in there. It's like, we're spending $850 million on content in Canada, Canadian content. Well, that, you know, all of a sudden that, that amount that was thrown around by Netflix a few years ago is it pales in comparison. So there should be a, they, there should be a contribution to the Canadian system. If you're going to come in here and, and uh, take, uh, $10, $15 a household from a take. There's value. There's the value there, but you should give back to the Canadian system. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, as you were giving us a terrific answer on, on what's going on here now, I'm curious your thoughts on the, the exploitation of the Canadian system that we've seen, well, I think on Netflix, potentially on, on Amazon Prime, where you know the media fund is providing kind of the, the core, let's say, capital to to create these these independent productions that end up on somehow maybe it's on CBC in many cases we think of Schitt's Creek as an example of a show that's done really well you know in distribution you know how much exploitation is going on of, of the Canadian huge, system huge yeah. amounts and then and, and when you come in and you just and you you buy a show and you buy you know rights for 20 years or like you're basically and in some cases in perpetuity and in some cases it's just work for hire you're just a branch plant like that just turns us into a branch plant yeah it's great that a film crew had work for 10 months on a, on a series or you know or, or a movie but if the intellectual property goes back to la they'll be making that money for 100 years and to, for for producers not to be able to maintain, and I, I'm not sure this is covered off by C10. We're going to a different area, but you know the notion that oh, you know it's it's it, you're just um, 
you're shortchanging yourself by giving by letting them come in and just say, oh, well, we hired, you know, 300 people for this show for six months. That's great. That's fantastic. But then that's it. Every other all the profit you make off those people doesn't flow to Canada. Well, there's a lot of kerosene on this fire. So let's we're, we're going to leave this particular part of our topic here. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go into you personally a little more Uh-oh. <laughs> while, while we got you. And so we do have some questions that we'd like to ask every guest. I know you've listened to a couple of our podcasts in preparation for today, but you might not have made it this far in any one episode. So we never know what we're going to get here. I did my homework. As Phil said, you know, when you come into an interview, make sure you've, you know, I looked at your LinkedIn. Okay. And I I did listen all the way. (laughs) So looking at you personally, you know, is there, is there a moment in your career that kind of stands out as most memorable? Um, I was ready for this. Uh, <laughs> there's, um, I, in the early, late eighties, early nineties, um, beef, this is when the kind of global war, there was still, there was a lot of different video channels around the world, not all owned by MTV and John Martin put together, they all started talking to each other and they put together this thing called the world music video awards. And it was like the, the music video broadcaster from Germany and the one from England, and again, this is before MTV had reached their tentacles and basically swallowed all of them up. And they each put in, we each put in a um, couple of performances into the show. And the second year we did the show, uh, and Pepsi was a huge sponsor. Somehow they got Pepsi on board and Russia, or well, the USSR at the time. And... Uh, <laughs> For some reason, uh, they said, you go produce the Russian segment. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, it was me, Kim Clark Champness, um, Brian Adams, his guitarist, Keith Scott, his manager, Bruce Allen, uh, Thomas Dolby, and his manager, Mary. I forgot her last name. That was it. <laughs> it was just go over there. So we all get on a plane and go over there. We'd sent the cassette um a few weeks in advance to a local band and they learned kids want to rock and i worked with the the russian broadcaster and they had a set and they they organized everything but i was the guy um to sort of try and make things make sure this thing came together in like three days um and it was nuts but it was like what an experience like going over to moscow and you know going through red square and then going out to the tv station and sitting with the editors and the producer and yeah it was uh that was a you know a a very memorable (laughs) memorable experience and then we had a couple we had a day off afterwards and we went uh, went to a record store and with brian and there was all these bootleg Brian Adams records. And I think at that point, the manager, thankfully the manager of Bruce had left. He didn't see the bootleg records, but yeah, it was, um, it was a fun experience. That was uh, pretty memorable. And then I guess, um, you know, standing 10 feet away from Sting when he's sound checking for an intermittent interactive and it's Sting, right? From the police, and you, my era, I grew up, I went to the police picnic and, you know all, all those records and yada my dad etc so that that was pretty cool just sort of yeah sting is right here in the office and um the environment as it was called so those are pretty <laughs> pretty memorable experiences so 
Well, thanks for sharing those. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to end this, this podcast without talking about the Much Music Video Awards. I mean, you kind of teed it up there and those are, those are an unbelievable the cultural spectacle and phenomenon, you know, in Toronto and around Canada. Uh, and well, that was I after wanted, the world, after the world music video awards came the much music video awards. So that was a, that was a boondoggle that I didn't in the sports department. I never got the invite to go to that, but, but I know that oh. I know the athletes were brought around as part of our kind of Olympic promotion for 2010 and 2012 to make them cultural icons after my time. But yes. Uh, yeah, it was quite the, the party. It was certainly a hot ticket and, uh, it's funny when I became vice president, uh, felt like I spent more time worrying about the guest list and who was on it and who wasn't on it. And there was a finite amount of space and keeping the peace amongst all the departments um, seemed to be more of my job than uh, what was going on the screen. So wow. luckily we had a very good team uh, looking after that. Well, we, we, know, we know when it comes to, to media and entertainment, hospitality uh, goes with it. Oh my God. The, the screaming and yelling and the, the scams and the <laughs> yeah, uh, one more, one more highlight. And this was kind of sprinkled throughout, uh, the, my much career and even, and since then, but it was just the involvement in, um, cause related concerts. And this goes back, I mean, uh, you know, they've been going on, you know, concert for Bangladesh in the sixties. And there's been all sorts of fundraising concerts. And, uh, you know, I had a very distant seat at the live aid table, but then we did stuff like smile Jamaica, which I remember uh, was a benefit in the eighties for, uh, there was some horrible hurricane in Jamaica. And we, we or John Martin was a big fan of, of the Caribbean and Caribbean music. And we organized this thing with the from the bamboo club and then there was the nelson mandela concerts and the concerts for kurdish refugees and um, and all those those were really great because it was fantastic music but it was also for a cause and it was really uh, i went over for the nelson the second nelson mandela concert i was at wembley stadium that was pretty uh, amazing and also for the the freddie mercury concert that was uh, you know those things but those were you know when you see people coming together for a cause that's very rewarding not to mention being at wembley stadium the old wembley stadium and i, I think i think those will pop up again yeah. as as we emerge from from covid um, i'm hoping yeah no they just had one uh, the other day uh it was just on a couple of nights ago uh, with the Foo Fighters and um, it was, you know, it was for the frontline workers. So yeah, they're, they're definitely, Hey, music, musicians have always given back. Uh, and it's always great to be a part of that and, and see that happening. Uh, thinking about the industry now, and let's, let's focus a little forward where we're kind of recovered from COVID um, at least the physical distancing part of it. Um, what, what advice do you have to, you know, young smart people who want to get into entertainment, the music business, the, the, the content acquisition distribution business. Like what kind of advice do you give to people who call you up and say, David, show me the way. Um, advice. Um, just throw yourself in there and uh, you know, you can sleep when you're dead. Um, you know, I, I don't worry about what, you know, my first job at, at, at city was on Friday night and they were like, you want to work Friday night? I'll go, yeah, I'll, I get to work on the new music. Are you kidding me? I'll, 
I'll throw away my Friday nights. That's not a problem. Um, I get to work in television. I get paid for it. So I think just just make yourself indispensable. Just ask a lot of questions and um, you know, don't go home till the last person's gone home because you're going to learn something. Just sat, stand in a corner and watch what's going on. Go into a control room, go into an edit suite and just suck it up and like suck up all the knowledge you can of what's going on there and just be curious. I guess if there's one word, I, two words, I'd say be curious. Well, thanks for the advice. That's great yeah. advice. I Sleep when you're dead is an amazing expression. I know that uh, my mother never liked to hear that when I said, oh, don't worry about it. But uh, it's, yeah. you got to do it. You got you, you got to focus and have passion. Yeah. I think beer curious. Like I, I just ask a lot of questions. Be annoying. I mean, don't ask stupid questions. You know, observe first before you ask the questions. But people are happy. I'm sure you are too to answer. Why are you doing that? What's that? Why? What? How did you come up with that formula? Why are you? You know, I'm happy to talk to people about what what I'm doing after they've, you know. Don't ask me to tell you how what how to do my job, but if, if you want to sit in a corner and watch for a while and then then ask some questions, then that's great. So after people listen to our chat today, you know, and they want to <laughs> ring you up, David, what, what what's the best way to find you? I, I'm on uh, I'm on I'm not on TikTok, <laughs> but I'm on everything else. They'll find me. Oh. Yeah, you know, and then I can't emphasize that enough, as Phil said on your episode it's just like do your homework for the love of god there's no reason why you can't find out too much about me there's too much about me on the internet including pictures um and the same you know same for just about anyone else so you know do your homework understand you know what we're doing don't don't send a resume in or a letter that just is a to whom it may concern i want to work in television like take take 20 minutes to research your target well, that's really great advice. Listen, thanks for thanks for joining us okay. in this chat. So much to learn. I hope it was uh, helpful. No, it was. Thank you. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.